So imagine, imagine if you were a West Point graduate, an army officer, and then your dreams come true and you are drafted into the NFL to live out your dream as a professional football player. But then you start getting hit by debilitating panic attacks. What do you do? Well, that's exactly what happened to my guest on this week's episode of The Best Thing, Caleb Campbell. It set him off on an amazing journey of bravery, of emotional wellness, and so many other things. In this conversation that I feel so privileged to have, you are going to take in so many amazing powerful messages that will inform you and your life in the way forward. I'm so excited you're tuned in for this. Before we get to this fantastic episode, I want to remind you that every single week I send out the absolute best text messages directly to your phone. If you want to get in on that, send me a text message right now at 310-564- 7124. That information is in the show notes. And if you like questions, guess what I have? I have questions. In fact, I have five questions that can change your life. If you want those questions sent to you, once again, go to the show notes for more information. But without further ado, let's get to this amazing episode of the Best Thing podcast with Caleb Campbell. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm the author of Stop Living on Autopilot, a speaker and success coach. Each week, I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Now, this week's guest I came across on Instagram, and when I did... I felt like I already knew the guy, and I'm excited for all of you to get to know him. Caleb Campbell is a West Point graduate, former Army officer, and NFL draft pick that now travels the country as an emotional wellness speaker and workshop facilitator. He's the host of the new podcast, You're Doing a Good Job, where Caleb and his guests dive deep into conversations around achievement pressure the mental health challenges that come with it, and how we can begin to live more emotionally aware, resilient, and connected lives. Now, whether he's in a school, on stage at a conference, or in a corporate setting, Caleb is passionate about creating safe, inclusive environments and facilitating brave conversations that help individuals maximize their human experience by living a more emotionally grounded and present life. Caleb Campbell, welcome to the best thing. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it's fun to have you. I see you smiling over there. You can't see yeah. Caleb right now, but for my intros, <laughs> I like to have fun with my intros to get my You're guests good, hyped man. up like before oh, basketball games when they're announcing the the starting five. So there's so much I want to dig into in, in our conversation. But the first thing I want to ask you about, which is for me, I was really curious about when we met initially, you were living on the West Coast. West Coast, man. Southern California. Now, as we speak, you and your wife have found your way to Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm just curious for you. A lot of people over the course of the pandemic held tight. They held tight for dear life, didn't want to change anything. The thought of them packing up, bouncing and moving 
across the country in a million years, people would not have done it. Tell me about you and your wife's decision to say, you know what, let's try something new, but also the willingness to try something new when maybe all the external voices and external factors are like, well, maybe you should slow down. There's a pandemic going on. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I think a part of me is actually still grieving Los Angeles. Uh, there's so much uh, to that city and to that, just that region that I value and that I adore and love in so many ways. And so a part of me is grieving not being there. So part of my journey here in Nashville because life is so much more kind of slower here in a very good way, I'm not saying that in a, in a negative way. It's given me the permission and the space to, uh, to process my grief around moves. But to go back to like kind of why we did it, I both, my wife and I, we were sitting in Los Angeles and we kind of looked at each other and we, she knew before me because I was still holding on to LA and these expectations of how I think my life should have turned out by going to LA, because that's what I was really grieving when I got here, are the unmet expectations and the unfulfilled dreams. But there was just this deep knowing that it was time to go. And I think one of the, probably one of the ways that we create so much friction and chaos in our life is holding on when we should be letting go. And if there's anything that's happened in my life over the course of my journey, I've, I have been on a journey of learning how to honor my heart and say yes to when that still small voice is nudging me even though it might not be the most logical decision, the most financially smart decision, if my heart and I can feel like my heart is saying yes, I go. And my wife and I both were feeling the same thing. So we decided to to pack our bags and make our way towards Nashville. Listen, well, first you said something really profound, like how we're really good as human beings, right? Of holding on when we should be letting go. Before we uh, hit record, I-, I was kind of discussing how I should, I need to let go of this camera I'm using right now, but I've been holding on. I've been holding on to it for far too long. This is a big question, but there's somebody yeah. listening right now and they're like probably in that paradox of, well, when do I hold on and when do I let go? Caleb, I hear you talking about the heart, but how do I tune in to know what the decision is? So I'm curious for you, do you have a, a decision making framework that you use? Are you consulting? Obviously, your wife and other people you look at as mentors, friends in your life. Like, how do you make big decisions? That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. I think this is the value of going on a journey of healing, right? Which might look like going to therapy, you know, uprooting some old, old past moments of your life that are still wreaking uh, chaos in your life emotionally and like talking through them. Because what happens is as we begin to heal, What's really happening is we are reconnecting to our bodies. We are learning how to trust the innate wisdom inside of us. And that is a journey. And it takes a lot of courage to go on that journey. And it's a lot of times um, wandering through the land of uncertainty, right? But for me personally, the way that I know is because you are exercising a muscle. So the more that you do it, the more in tune you get with the truth that you are uh, being led into or from. And... For me, I am a big believer that when I lose my peace with something, like I I try hard to live an aligned life. And when I lose my peace or if I find myself avoiding something, really avoiding it, then I know there's something there that I need to look hard at that. So if I'm finding myself avoiding having a hard conversation with my wife about moving, we need to have a hard conversation about moving. If I find myself avoiding having a hard conversation about leaving that job, I need to have that hard conversation about leaving that job because I'm avoiding it because I'm scared or something else is going on. And I think that in a lot of ways, we aren't 
as stuck as we think we are. We just need to create the space in our hearts and in our lives to do the one thing that we are avoiding in our lives. Do that one thing, have that conversation, right? And I think that's what guides my decision-making process. And then the last thing I'll say to this is I think that sometimes God, the universe source, whatever you want to say, I don't think it's as much about making the right decision all the time because that's on you. And that's on your ability to be perfect. And we screw up. I screw up. <laughs> I think I think God, the universe, or whatever you want to say, is trying to get you to cultivate the courage inside of you to make a decision. Because God's got a billion and one ways to get you where you're going. But what God needs to happen in your life is for you to begin to cultivate the courage to make a decision and to stand on a decision. Because it's that courage that's going to lead you to the heights of your life. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I mean, I have to remind myself and remind others that, you know, first, not making a decision is making a decision, <laughs> right? We think by not doing anything, things are going to magically improve or, or something, but not making a decision is making a decision. And I agree with you 100%. You says we're not as stuck as we think we are. By, by no means, that's not the case at all. It's just that in many ways, we're, we're unwilling to make a decision. And I found that in my personal uh, life that, Sometimes the the next step, we're trying to figure out life. The next step won't be revealed until I actually make a decision about my current situation. And boy, you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about when we're avoiding something, right? That, that that's, a, that's a tap on the shoulder that's talking to you, telling you. And for me, one of those um, things that get the flashing red light going in me is if I feel a sense of obligation to do something. Like if I'm feeling yeah. obligated to do something and I don't want to do it, boy... I, the antennas come up and I'm like, yo, I need to dig deep because I know some resentment's about to show up. Yeah, if, that's good. I, if I don't dig into the obligation, let's go on this a little bit further because you talked about avoiding something, but something that as I go through your website and different messaging is that when I come across research on you on the internet, a consistent two words come up and those two words are brave conversations, <laughs> brave conversations. Mm -hmm. And look, man, we, you know, it's, a lot of us human beings, you know, we're so good at avoiding things, man. We're so uh, good at not wanting to have those tough conversations, yeah. right? Let's, honey, let's just put on Netflix, right? Why, why should we talk about that disagreement we had in the car earlier when I turned left and you wanted to turn right? So I'm curious for you, for people who are looking to build courage, yeah. to be willing to have some brave conversations. I'm curious, do you have any suggestions or even how you go about having these kind of conversations in your life. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's there's so many different dynamics that come with having a brave conversation, and I think it's equal parts you and equal parts the other person that you want to have a conversation with. A lot of times, the foundation that is incredibly important to have hard conversations is to feel emotionally safe. And for a lot of people inside of the context of relationships, whether it's a friendship or an intimate partner, we don't actually feel emotionally safe, and so I think. To start beginning to move towards having brave conversations, you have to start feeling more emotionally safe. What does that look like? That looks like learning how to actively listen to the person that you're talking to, right? Don't offer unsolicited feedback because nobody likes unsolicited feedback, <laughs> right? My wife and I do a thing now where we tend to verbally vomit on the people who are closest to us. And so what my wife does to help protect the sacredness of our relationship and keep a foundation of emotional safety is before she's going through a hard time or before I, when I'm going through a hard time, before I just say, hey, Kara, this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, I say, hey, Kara, do you have the emotional capacity to handle what's going on in my life right now before I talk to you about it? I give her the chance, 
right? Because if I don't, I just spew on her and then she's in the middle of her own thing and she doesn't respond the way that I think she should respond. It can build up resentment or bitterness or just a, a fight that could be, could have been prevented. And so I think there is some like kind of culture, environment, foundational things that are necessary to actually facilitate brave conversations. But when it comes to you saying the things that you need to say, you know, I think a lot of times like what would happen? What is your life going to look like a month from now, three months, a year, three years from now, if you don't have this conversation? Like what is your life going to look like if you don't have this conversation? You're going to be stuck in the same job, in the same dead end, you know, relationship that's not going to actually change, right? What's your health going to look like? And if you can go there, and I think Tony Robbins made this kind of popular with the Dickens process. Like if you don't make, if you don't make a change in your life right now, what is your life going to look like five years from now? And that usually is like, oh, I don't want that, right? So I think when it goes to making and having, starting those hard conversations, it's learning how to recognize that if I don't have this conversation, what's it costing me? Because it's high. And then secondly, another great way of practicing brave conversations is learning how to actually talk about your emotions, your feelings, right? And there is vocabulary around that. How do you feel today? I do daily check-ins with my body. How do I feel today? Just so that I get more acquainted with the emotions attached to the sensations that I'm that I'm feeling. And so the more you're able to actually effectively communicate your thoughts, the more you're willing to actually talk about hard things because I think it's so unfamiliar that keeps people from having brave conversations. And the last thing I would say to this man, it's learning how to communicate well. I just heard a great analogy the other day that says in communication, especially with hard conversations, you want to keep the ball over on your net. And they're talking about tennis, right? I can't play tennis on the other side of the net. I got to play on my side. And the way that I play on my side is to always be aware of my situation and my feelings and nothing about you. So I can't come in and say, bro, you made me feel this way. Nope. I just fought over the net. I placed a responsibility on you, right? I felt this way when this happened. I stayed on my net now, right? I assumed responsibility. This isn't on you. This is about me. This is what I'm going through. And I think staying on your net and we could go really deep with that. Learning how to do that is incredibly important because it helps prevent tension, unnecessary tension. Absolutely. I, I'm already, I already can hear somebody right now. Like, Caleb, you don't understand. I'm super fast. I can get to both sides of the nets really quick. I can do it. <laughs> but no, I hear exactly what you're saying. I mean, listen, I've done therapy, you know, couples counseling with my wife. And I think one of the key takeaways I had from that, from one of our, our therapists is exactly what she said. And the way he framed it was keeping your side of the street clean. Yeah, man. And I 100% understand that and appreciate keeping your side of the street clean. I really like what you just shared regarding your wife. Like you asked permission, hey, are you open for what I'm about to share? And nine yeah. times out of 10, we as human beings, we, we don't do that. We just come up and share everything. And you don't know what kind of mental space that person is in. And I think what's even worse sometimes is when you ask that person, hey, are you open to feedback? Hey, can I share something with you? When they actually say, actually, no, now, not, now's not a good time. Then they're like, okay, just real quick. And then they just blur it out. <laughs> and you're like, son, did you not just that's hear? When we, that's when we really learn practicing boundaries. <laughs> boundaries. Like, did you just hear what I said? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I like what you said. And I found in my experience, you know, when we learn to communicate, especially, you know, in, in really close relationships that revealing actually ends up creating intimacy between individuals. They can actually bring it so much closer together. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about something I write about in my book, that, that question that Tony Robbins asked, but also a question I like to ask is, are you moving towards a future that will make you happy or one that will break your heart? Yeah. 
But most people don't hit pause long enough to ask themselves that question because that check-in can be scary. So scary. So you know, we distract, we sedate, Prime Video, alcohol, <laughs> Netflix. We do anything but do that checking of people. Listen, I'm reminding myself to do the check-in right now, but I'm reminding the listeners as well to do the same. I want to rewind for a second before we get to the question of one of the best things to happen to you. You said something that you mentioned, and it's just stuck with me because I write about this in my book, but I think a lot of people feel this way in this past year over the course of the pandemic. I think really as people asking themselves this question, and the question, the statement that you made was, um, you know, basically about how I didn't think my life should have, I, I didn't know this is how my life was going to turn out or how yeah. it was, should, should have turned out. There are some people right now, man, they're like, how did I get here? Mm. How did I get here? And do I just stay the course as we always hear in society, trust the process, stay the course? Or is it time for me to make a pivot for, for, so for that person, if someone's like sitting there like, man, this is not how I thought my life was going to turn out. I know this is very open-ended how I'm asking this. I'm hoping you can, you can take it a little bit, but for that person who's questioning and maybe a little bit frustrated, like how, how did my life turn out this way? What are some steps you think they should take to get some insight on that big question? Yeah. I think the first thing, obviously we talk about it, (laughs) find somebody that you are emotionally safe with and talk about this process. This, I think there is so much clarity and freedom found in just opening up and having a conversation that discusses your disappointments, your, uh, your confusion, your, uh, your mistakes, whatever it might've been that have led you there. Talking about that is obviously the foundation to all of this, because if you don't talk about it, you're suppressing it. And that's the road to emotional constipation and ain't no time for that, right? Because it's not the life that we want or that we are made to live. Uh, that's what creates the mental health challenges uh, in some serious, serious ways. For me personally, man, because this is this is my journey and my my approach to life is so much of what we experience in Western culture is very much a, a masculine energy. It's a do, it's a be, it's achieve, it's a go, it's a succeed, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And for so many of us, it serves us well. But here's what we don't do, and here's what I am passionate about. I have, probably can't see it on the video, but I have an altar behind me, kind of like a makeshift altar that I spend every morning at, where I take the time and create the space in my heart and in my life to grieve my disappointments to grieve the unmet expectations in my life. Because what happens is, is we don't in American society, I don't feel like in the Western world, we don't give ourselves the space to actually grieve life not turning out the way we thought it was going to turn out. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we try harder and we go again. But we try harder, we go again at the expense of ourselves. And so what we're doing actually is we're on the road to burnout. We're on this road to where do I go from here? I don't have the emotional fortitude or energy to continue. I'm done. And sometimes it takes you to hit that that stone wall. But what I do is for your life to change, you have to create the emotional space for your life to change. And the way that we create the emotional space is we take time to honor our disappointments, honor the unmet expectations, honor the unfulfilled dreams, all the ways you thought your life was going to turn out and they didn't honor them. Because what that really does, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean you made a mistake. It doesn't mean you're not good enough. What it speaks volumes to is your capacity to believe big. What it speaks volumes to is your capacity to love and to open yourself up to receive love, right? And the tragedy is, is when we don't take the time to honor it, 
we literally shut down our heart space from inviting in the very things that are trying to make their way into our lives, the goodness that we are longing for. And so for me, just to answer your question in a long roundabout way, I am I am one that is not very prone to like, well, just keep trying or, you know, brush yourself off, take some breaks and then try again, figure it out. It's going to break. It's going to break. There's an element of truth to that, but I am somebody that's like, let's create the space for our life to unfold. Because what happens too, is when you sit in the stillness of those disappointments and you process them, right? I write a letter to that Caleb in a lot of ways. I write a letter to that Caleb that wanted those things. And I just, I say like, almost like I think of my higher self over here and I listen, what would my higher self be saying to that Caleb that's full of disappointment and hurt? and pain. And I just write a letter and I let it out. And it's like this, this act of self-compassion and, and grieving and honoring all at the same time. And I'm letting that go energetically. It's just, it's just happening because I'm processing it. And that's the very thing that it gives us the space uh, to invite in the things that are for us and help us put us on the right path. Yeah, man. And the key thing you're talking about that I'm hearing is just the keyword space. Yeah, man. Right. How little space we give ourselves. An exercise I give my clients, and it's the most simple exercise ever. It's nothing brand new, nothing I came up with. I have go, folks go for a 30 minute walk with no distractions. Yeah. No music, no podcast, no phone, no nothing. Just go for a walk in nature for 30 minutes. When people do that, first of all, most people say, man, those first 10 minutes were hard. Uh, <laughs> would, they were hard. I was going crazy. I had the phantom buzzing in my pocket from my phone, all these different <laughs> things. But then a couple other things will happen when they give themselves that space. Either A, a lot of folks will say, yo, I actually had a big breakthrough for what I'm working on at work or a personal project. Or then other people will share things like, man, I started crying. Some emotions came out or I started laughing like crazy. Or different, because as you mentioned earlier, like I think a lot of us are really emotionally constipated. We've pushed back so much sadness, so much fear, so much anger, even so much happiness just in general. And when we pull out our phones every two seconds and when we're on Instagram nonstop or Twitter and we're constantly refreshing, even that just does not, it's a hindrance. It does not activate or create space for us. So I I appreciate all that you said, and I think that does lead to that journey of healing. But let's transition over to this question of the best thing. You know, on this podcast, I like to talk to people about the best thing to happen to them that wouldn't necessarily appear in their resume or their bio or LinkedIn profile that has had a profound effect on who they are. And for me, I'm actually really excited to ask you this question because if people Google your name on the internet, they're like, yo, this cat was in the NFL. This cat (laughs) served our country, a West Point graduate. I mean, mean, ridiculously impressive stuff that is... Just just super, super impressive. I know firsthand, though, as you know, that the internet tells a story. Yeah. It doesn't tell the whole story. Mm. So I'm curious for you, what's one of those things that has had a That's profound good. effect on who you are that doesn't necessarily show up on the internet? That doesn't show up on the internet. You'd have to dig for it. It's out there, but you'd have to dig for it. But I would say that the moment that's really marked my life was in 2008. It was the night that I ended up getting selected in the 2008 NFL draft. And if you're familiar with West Point, then you probably know that at West Point, you have a a five-year military obligation once you graduate. And there was this new policy my sophomore year at West Point. I was the number six, seventh strong safety in all of Division One football. Conversation started happening. Long story short, can Caleb play in the NFL? Department of Defense created this new policy that was going to allow me to play in the NFL. And 
my senior year, I ended up, you know, getting a lot of media coverage, ESPN, 30 for 30, all of the E60 kind of things, all of these stories. And they just started to build all that started to build all this pressure in my life. And at this point in my life, football wasn't a game. It's the way that I found acceptance and love and validation, right? It's my belonging in this world. And I got drafted that night. And bro, I was the kid with two cell phones, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I got a cell phone from my agent. I got a cell phone just from like my personal cell phone. I'm going through all this stuff. And I remember being in uh, the limo going back to West Point. And I'm, I'm, putting my phones down and I have to take a deep breath because I feel like I'm drunk. I'm like, something's wrong with me. And that night, the night of the biggest day of my life, I go back into my, you know, my barracks, my dorms. And when the lights go out, I can't sleep. And my mind is racing. My mind is racing in about 45 minutes or an hour after my mind is racing. Suddenly I feel like there is a hundred pound giant sitting on my chest and on my throat. And I can't physically breathe. I'm panicking. I can't walk. I end up falling over and I am hyperventilating. My vision's going blurry and I want to sob, but there's other cadets everywhere. So I literally crawl my way across into the bathroom and I reach up and I turn on as many showers as I can in the, in the bathroom and I just well. And I cry and I weep. And that was the first moment, that first time I've ever had a panic attack. And I remember, man, that this moment marked me because it was the first time I came face to face with the truth of what was really going on in my life. At this time in my life, I'm so concerned with living up to the expectations of everybody. I'm so concerned about what people think about me. I'm so concerned about all of these things that we go through. And now it's at the height. And it marks me because the next day I had a cadet, a friend come up to me and says, yo, I heard you last night. Are you okay? And I said, what are you talking about? And I got angry. I was so good at using my anger to protect myself. So good at using my anger to regain control of a situation whenever I felt vulnerable or like I was about to be exposed. And I reared up my chest, pulled my shoulders back. And I said, again, what are you talking about? And I shut that down fast because at that time, for them to know that I was suffering, that I was having that happen to me behind closed doors was like death. It was death. And so I shut it down. And that moment marked me because it, even though it would take another several years for me to begin my journey in more, several more panic attacks, it was a moment that I did come face to face with the reality of what was happening behind the facade. And would you say, first, I appreciate for, for you for sharing that with us. And again, it's something that probably not a lot of people would, would assume that here's a guy that's ridiculously talented, getting recognized for major awards in collegiate sports, getting drafted, which is huge. You know, it's fair to say a lot of fo- folks don't get drafted out of West Point mm-hmm. every single year. So it, it was a really, really big deal. And for you, I'm curious was it like I'm thinking about when that cadet came up to you to ask if you were okay, that outreach that so many of us spurn, that so many of us push away. I've been, I know for a long time I was good at that. Was that the veneer that had been built up over years, the masculinity that came from being a cadet at West Point, right? What that requires from being that that you know big time football player. What do you think? Was it was it youth? 
that would w- spurn that the help. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, in you know, I, I often talk about beyond just like the traditional roles and uh, masculinity and what we're taught in our culture as a soldier and growing up in a culture. Yeah, it really didn't teach me the emotional s- skill sets to work through something like that or the language or to understand what was happening. I was never taught any of that. But in a way, for me, you know, it goes back to when I was six years old. And I, something I unpacked in uh, therapy. And I remember when I was six and I had scored a game winning touchdown and flag football. And I ran to the sideline and my fat, red, chubby little face, you know, sweating my face off. And my mom grabs me by the face. And I can remember like it was yesterday. And this used to be so emotionally charged for me. Now it's not because I've been able to process it. But my mom just said something so innocent. And she says, honey, Caleb, you scored the game winning touchdown. I love you so much. And what happened to me in that moment, in a moment of such innocence, is I was taught to believe that my love is predicated on scoring touchdowns in life, which was literally and also metaphorically, right? So life became one big performance. And that day, whenever I was confronted and asked about what was happening, it wasn't about the panic attack. It was about you were about to take my lifeline away. You were about to expose me that I am a man that doesn't have what it takes. And if I don't have what it takes, how am I going to perform well? And so as much as it was the veneer of trying to like live up to the expectations of societal norms around traditional masculinity, it ran deeper because this was the way that I learned to receive love in life. And it's the same love that fuels every single one of us. And so that's what was threatened that day that provoked that response. And I want to unpack this a little bit more. I'm curious... If I read correctly online and as I researched your background, things got a little, even after you got drafted, <laughs> right? Didn't some, some things got a little haywire with the army, right? Where they wouldn't <laughs> immediately let you play. So like yeah. this thing that you love to death mm-hmm. at the time was your lifeline. What what happened with the rules and regulations between you getting drafted and then them, them saying, actually, hold on a second. Absolutely. I'm glad you bring that up because I think it's an important part of my story and it's unexpected with a lot of people because what happened is now I graduate West Point, I'm a commissioned officer and I, all cadets, we have a a month off and, you know, I think it's 972 other cadets that I graduated with. They are now reporting to their officer basic school and their units that they're being assigned to. And I now under this new policy was allowed to report to the Detroit Lions where I was going to play and also serve simultaneously, but in a uh, a reserve capacity. And I'm on the day that I'm scheduled to sign my first NFL contract, which happened to be the eve of training camp. And I've got a car deal. I got a literally a Chevy dealership gave me a free car to shoot a commercial for them. I'm, I'm signing autographs. I get a card, like a, a playing card deal. I've, I'm just like, I'm in it, man. Like I, I've worked my entire life for this. And a lot of it was like, I proved everyone wrong and like, look at me now. But at the same time, I know that I was playing football better in sixth grade than I was playing football in offseason NFL, which happened pre right, right before leading up to this moment. We had four weeks of offseason. I literally was playing better football in sixth grade. I was getting my ass kicked left and right and up and down in the field. And I knew deep down I was screwed. I knew there's no way and a chance in hell that I was going to actually make that team. And I was scared because I was about to be exposed. And I was having a lot of deep, deep anxiety, a few, a couple panic attacks during that time. I can remember at the hotel in Detroit 
And the morning that I was supposed to sign my NFL contract, I got a phone call from my agent said, get to the stadium, something's happening. And I'm like, what the heck is happening? So I go to the stadium and I walk into this room and there's literally the president of the team, the CEO, vice president, head coach, everybody but the owner was basically there. And I walk in, they say, Caleb, sit down. And then they tell me that the policy that was passed by the Department of Defense that went into motion my sophomore year at West Point had been rescinded and revised. And under the new policy, I could not play in the NFL. I would have to go back and serve for three years. And maybe after three years, if the policy changes again, I can ask for an early release. And if I have an NFL contract three years later, I can then pursue my dreams of playing in the NFL. And so I said, okay. And this is what people don't know, bro. I went back to my hotel room and I rejoiced. I sang praises to the (laughs) Lord above. (laughs) I rejoice, man, because I just got out of a get out of jail free card. I now did not have to be exposed as a player that doesn't have what it takes. I could now have a three year gap and still find love and acceptance because I'm training for the NFL. My story is now all over ESPN and people are wondering who is this Campbell kid? What has happened? News stations are covering me. So by all measures of acceptance, I'm, I'm, I'm being met. I'm being met in all areas. And so I'm ecstatic. And at the same time, I get a safe face, right? And so I tell myself for three years, I know when I get the chance to go back to the NFL, I have to be ready. And so what do I do? I do what a lot of us would do. I get big, I get fast, and I get strong. I become Captain America. Not joking. I'm the biggest, I'm the fastest, I'm the strongest I've ever been because I'm damn well going to be prepared for the NFL. And I did. For three years, I served and I got the biggest, fastest, and the strongest I've ever been. I was a machine. And I remember when I got back to the NFL, the first day I walked out on that field during training camp, I vomited everywhere because I knew that despite being fast, big, and strong, that I missed it. The real work that needed to be done was in my heart. And the fear, hit me so hard. And that first day of the NFL, I knew that I was screwed. I mean, I hear you say you were screwed and it's not like you had one day, like you, you, you're in the league for a few years. You got signed by multiple teams. So the the few times I've heard you say I wasn't good enough. I'm also seeing that many teams have said, Caleb, come come join us. Come help us. This is the fascinating part. I don't mean to cut you off there. I'm so sorry. Um, I tried in the NFL to be good enough to be on the practice squad, but not be good enough to play on Sundays. I literally try to toe that line every single day of waking up, trying to be good enough to be on practice squad because I need, they needed me and I can still go out on the weekends and let people know that I'm with the Detroit Lions or the Kansas City Chiefs or whoever, but not good enough on Sunday. I didn't actually want to play because if I played, I ran the risk of losing it all. I ran the risk of being seen as somebody that just doesn't have what it takes. And at this time, that's my biggest fear. I'd rather die. That was death to me. So I told that line. And so what happened is I knew something was so incredibly screwed up with me to be doing that. Like I'm wasting away my biggest opportunity here. And I didn't know how to process it. And I was afraid to have brave conversations. And that's why I'm passionate about it. I was afraid to open up and to talk about this. And so this self-hatred then began to create this cycle of self-destruction because I was so mad at myself. And the self-destruction got so bad that I'm in the middle of my NFL dreams and I'm getting high in the morning, getting high at night. Any chance I can get just to numb the pain that is coming with me from hating myself so much. And to the point that I, I partied so hard one night that I woke up and I realized that if something doesn't change, it's only a matter of time before I'm no longer here. Yeah. And 
I mean, that's heavy and, and that's real, but you said something a moment ago that I think a lot of us need to hear is we can focus on what's external, but when we mm-hmm. avoid what's internal, when the real work needs to be done, that's in our heart. That's where the real shifts can happen. That's where the magic can happen. But the crazy thing is, unfortunately, society, a lot of times, they don't see the shifts in the heart sometimes. Someone can see if the biceps get bigger. Someone can see if you lose weight. (laughs) Someone can see if your follower count goes up, but they can't see if you become a better better human. They can't see if you're taking time for gratitude. They can't see if you're taking time for grieving, as you mentioned earlier. We're going to have to do a round two for this because I want to go, no, because I want to go deeper into your journey, which has been profound. But I do want to come to this this last question, though, that I think is going to be a fascinating one for you to answer. You know, we talked about a bit about your your journey today and what you're up to. And for me, man, when I talk to you, when I see, when I see the videos you share on Instagram, it's like this dude's a philosopher. He's a saint. He's, I love that you're saying things that so many people seem unwilling to say, because I think a lot of the internet will just tell us like, you got to push through, we got to figure it out. You got to be, you know, listen, I was a collegiate athlete myself. So I, I know at least that vibe of it. But tw- 12 years ago, uh, 13 years ago, 2008, Caleb, if somehow he could have flashed fa- you could have flashed forward and he could see the work that you're doing today. Mm-hmm. How in shock would that kid have been? Or <laughs> would he have not even been in shock? He'd just be saying, thank you. Like, wow, homie. Thank you. Like, how do you think he, he would even view what's happening today? I think he would have been so perplexed and confused because he would see that he has everything that he wanted, but just in a way that he never expected. Say that again. Say that again. <laughs> Say that uh, again. I think he would be so perplexed and confused because he would see that he has everything that he wanted, but just in a way that he never expected. And that's been the journey. It's been the journey of releasing the expectations of how I can think life should unfold and just opening my heart to receive what is. Ooh, so right now, you know, you know, and I know, and I'm speaking, you're speaking to me right now. I'm getting punched in the face in a really, really good way right now. Some love, some love punches right now. Just you saying how we can have everything we want, but sometimes in ways that we never expected if we are holding on too tight, right? If we're unwilling to release, if we're unwilling to trust, what a, what a gift just to have that, that awareness again, everything he wanted, but in a way he never expected for me that's just a reminder for all of us to leave some space for some magic leave some space to end up going down a road you didn't anticipate going down leave some space for the unknown would you agree again and again and again and it's uncomfortable in the unknown that's the uncertainty that's the gray area but it's the gold it's in the unknown that uh the things that are hidden beneath the layers begin to surface. And what's keeping you from actually stepping into the more in your life is not your talent, your skill set. It's probably your belief systems, the way that you see yourself or the way that you see the world, what you're taught to believe about love or abundance or whatever it might be. And it's in the unknown that all of that stuff begins to surface. And then once you begin to see it, you can contextualize it, you can heal it. And that's what's going to catapult your life forward. Yo, listen, this has been... An amazing conversation for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, 
I'm going to be selfish right now because it's my podcast. It's been amazing for me. Awesome, brother. Second, I know it's been amazing for the listeners. For people who want to learn more about you, of course, I'm going to have all the key information in the show notes. But where would you like to send them to to, to stay up to date on all you're up to? Yeah, probably just Instagram, man. I'm redoing my website right now, but I'm right as of now, staying most active on Instagram. Taking a little break, but I feel some energy around it again. So find me there. Beautiful. His Instagram link will be in the show notes. Caleb Campbell, once again, thank you for making time on the best thing. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate the work you're doing. Hey, listen, for more information on me and the best thing podcast, just head over to my website at theantonionevs.com. There you can also sign up to read the first chapter of my best-selling book, Stop Living on Autopilot, or receive five questions that can change your life. You can receive both of those things absolutely for free. All I need is your email address. Okay, if you haven't followed the Best Thing podcast already, please make sure you do that now. And while you're at it, please go ahead and give us a five-star review. Believe it or not, it goes a long way to help spread the word. I want to thank you in advance for doing that and thank you again for listening. I will see you back here next week with another amazing episode. In the meantime, remember that the best is ahead when you work and believe like the best is ahead, things begin to change for the better. Never forget, you have a say in this.